0: ESPN, in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, present Moxie Betts. Make bets with Moxie with betting expert Katie Mox and her merry band of gambling insiders as they preview lines, spreads, parlays, and props with personality and the kind of advice they would give themselves. That's Moxie Betts. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about... Well, whatever the hell I want, actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me.
1: My name is Brianna Media, And my current dilemma is I feel the need to be very involved in social media, but my mental health is screaming at me to take a break.
0: Don't I know it. Um, I recently actually took a few days off right after the Roe v. Wade announcement, and it was well-timed in that I was spending a few days with friends at the lake, so it was natural to just put down the phone, ignore the news, ignore social media while I raged and processed, raged and processed repeat. Um, And when I got back online after four days, there were the obvious annoyances, you know, things that I hadn't forgotten in such a short time. People are cruel and ignorant and combative and angry and selfish and all of those things. But more so I remembered how quickly I can be set off by people who Um, who argue straw men in place of what you've actually written, Um, people who comment on things about which they've done zero research and know nothing, people who seem to lose entirely their humanity and their empathy when they move into online spaces. Um, It's not that I'd forgotten that. It's just, I forgot how that made me feel and literally changed my mental space, my physical feelings. So, Those breaks are super necessary for me to keep calibrating what really matters, to keep perspective on the value that I place on Twitter and Insta and social spaces, and to keep a note of how I feel mentally, physically, you know, when it comes to my peace, when I'm away from my phone versus when I'm on it all day. Um, So all that is to say, obviously, take breaks. Long ones if necessary. Schedule posts in advance so that you've got some content up if you feel like you need to, but be willing to leave it and not check it until your scheduled break is over. Have an assistant that can log in and delete super offensive or hateful comments that might pop up. But keep your peace and keep your extended time away. Um, It's hard to do, but really, truly necessary. So listen to your body. Listen to what it's telling you.
1: That's what she said.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Sorry for the little touch of party voice, uh, but I had a killer weekend celebrating WNBA All-Star here in Chicago. Um, I highly recommend, if you didn't, seeking out a bunch of the highlights, uh, whether it's Allie Quigley's incredible fourth three-point contest win or Sylvia Fowles' dunk in the game, Kelsey Plum's MVP performance, the touching honors for both Sue Bird and Sylvia Fowles in their last All-Star games, So much good stuff. Amazing parties, brand activations, panels, conversations, just tons of good energy around women's sports. Uh, You love to see it. This week's guest is Brianna Media. She's an author and social media influencer whose new book, Nowhere for Very Long, is a New York Times bestseller. It's about her life as a nomad and explorer. Starts out with her child in Connecticut, how her parents' divorce and her father's absence affected her views on life and space and who she was. Um... Then, to her time living on a boat, her decision to buy a giant, beat-up, bright orange van and move out west to live uh, in the canyons of Utah with her husband and their dogs, uh, about their adventures, their struggles, the difficulties in trying to live the life of a nomad, and then the one dramatic, tragic moment that changed everything and ultimately led to the collapse of her picture-perfect life and escape. In a recent Instagram post, um, she quoted Donald Winnicott, quote, it is a joy to be hidden, and a disaster not to be found. She called it the most accurate quote she'd ever read about being a writer. And that sounds right, especially for memoirs, but it also feels applicable to her life. She's sort of constantly running, escaping, trying to prove she could do it all alone, while also desperately trying to connect. Uh, to be seen, to be recognized, and to find others to share in what she's seeing and experiencing. So our conversation covered the fun stuff, the tough stuff, and ultimately sort of became a bit of a therapy session for someone who felt to me during our chat like she needed some some words of encouragement and some perspective because she's really right in the middle of it right now. Hope you enjoy the conversation. That's what she said. So I'm going to start, Brianna, by sharing how I found out about you because it was an, it was a nothing story until I heard you on another podcast talking about this book and how when you started the book, it was, I'm going to write about living in a van with my dogs and my husband and how I have this great nomadic, beautiful, perfect life. Mm-hmm. That is why I asked you to be on the podcast because I was, I just hiked the Grand Canyon with my mom and my husband. We were. Sore legs, dying, decided to stop in Flagstaff the last day before we went to the airport. And I picked up a local newspaper and I wanted to see what the haps were in Flagstaff. And in the paper, it said Instagram influencer, Brianna Media is going to be here talking about her new book. And it had a picture of you and your dogs. I was like, I've never heard of this lady. And I was like, how have I never heard of her? I have three rescue dogs. I'm obsessed. I love nature. I'm like out here hiking. Like, let me check this out. And then I see the book and the cover and the story. And I'm like, this sounds amazing. All right, I'm, I'm going to read the book. And I'm going to have her on the podcast before I've even read it. I'm going to ask her to come on because I just want to talk to her. And then I read the book. And then I start digging online. And then I find the Brianna Snark Reddit. And mm. then I'm like, oh, shit. There is so much more to this story than just girl who's living the dream out, out, out west with her dogs. So I only want to say that because this will be a journey of a conversation and we're going to start with a lot of the positives. Cause I, yeah. I, I want to hear that from you because I feel like you've probably spent a lot of time on the tail end of the book and a lot of the things that go wrong. Yeah. And so I want to first start by asking, how has it been talking about all of this? I imagine being a New York times bestselling author, you're doing lots of interviews. You're talking to a lot of people. Have you found it cathartic or has it been painful or both? I think it's definitely been both.
1: Um, there's so many aspects of the book that I loved writing. And there were so many aspects of the book that I just, Oh, just debated over agonized over really. Um, in terms of it's just so hard when you want to tell your story and you're treading so lightly around not telling other people's stories. Mm-hmm. Um, And that was just so hard for me writing about, you know, the men in my life. (laughs) Um, I always like to tell people my mom has not actually read my book. Wow. Um, And I don't blame her. And I also don't, you know, I don't necessarily blame the people who are mentioned in the book for being really nervous about it. If I found out that somebody was writing, somebody very close to me was writing a memoir, I would be very nervous. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, that was, that's, that's been sort of hard because it was cathartic writing it. And then I sort of realized that wasn't the end because then I had to go and talk about it over and over and over again. And that certainly makes it easier. It's almost like a form of therapy, but there are days where I don't want to be identified by some of the the really difficult things that have happened in my life.
0: Yeah, that's so I think also when you write a book, especially one that is a memoir and is very honest in that moment, you recognize that the moment is fleeting. And when it's printed, published and read, that could be right away. It could be years later. And if you're an ever evolving person who, in your case, is constantly self-analyzing, and learning and growing and trying to figure out who you are and what's next and who you wanna be, there must be a, a natural pain. I remember talking to um, Glennon Doyle about this, the difficulty in putting down who you are in any sort of print, because you are inevitably gonna be someone different by the time someone reads it.
1: Oh, absolutely. And one of the craziest things is that I wrote this book in real time. <laughs> um, I wrote this book and I talked about getting divorced while getting divorced. Mm-hmm. So this almost is like a diary. And right. I was so nervous about that because so many memoirists have that time, that distance between the events and then how they think about the events and, and how they reflect on the events. And I didn't, I didn't have that and I had to just be okay with that, but it was really difficult and Ultimately, I just told myself over and over again, I want to look back at this years from now and be proud that in a lot of instances, I tried to be the bigger person because there were so many times where I sat down in front of my manuscript and I was angry. I was so angry. I was so devastated. So I wanted... I wanted to look back and be able to say that I was proud of how I handled the situation. And even though a lot of the things I was, I actually was writing a lot of things in the hopes that this is going to sound strange maybe, but that I would feel that way even more as time Mm. went
0: on. Right.
1: Um, That I would have the sort of forgiveness that I was hoping for. So I wrote it almost as like a note to myself in the future that I think I will look back and be proud. Of course, it's going to be kind of messy and, and always sort of painful to recall certain aspects of the story, but I just felt like I wanted to be proud. And especially with some of the negative feedback, it just makes me so mad. Cause I'm like, Oh, you have no idea how much I agonized over what to say and what not to say. And, and I- ultimately, I just have to be proud that I told my story and I think I told it as respectfully as possible.
0: So we're going to get into a lot of that. Yeah. I'm curious because reading the book, you would assume, okay, all of this happened. And then she said, let me write a book. There's so much that's happened. When in fact, the pitch was just write a book about leaving behind the comforts of life to live in a van with your husband and dogs and travel around and kind of share with people what happens when you know your 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 home breaks down regularly and you're doing insane i mean insane canyoneering where you're like the 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 width of your body is more than the hole you're trying to squeeze through and your dog is on a harness between your legs hanging from you and you're (laughs) bleeding I mean like all of that's enough before the sort of last quarter of the book where everything kind of blows up so I wonder and this is a very cynical thing but this comes from a writer and someone who's always creating content was there any point during all of this where you're like cynically like trying to drive yourself forward by being like it's good for the book (laughs) (laughs) like where you're just like, like I hate to say it, but like, I got shit to talk about. Yes.
1: I mean, I, and I, it's sort of a coping mechanism, I think for me to, when to sort of view my life in stories. And I always sort of talk about this fascinating part of, I think most artists, writers, anybody, you almost have to disassociate a little bit and be like hovering over your own life to sort of say like, well, how can I use this? Like, I know I'm experiencing it or I have experienced it, but like, how can I find meaning in this? And and I feel like storytelling is the answer to that for me.
0: Yeah. And I do think, it is difficult to be brutally honest with yourself as yourself, but if you hover a little bit over and you're a character, then yeah. you can assign a lot of things to yourself that it's hard to be honest about if you're if you're just, you know. So, so, so true. differently.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech.
0: Okay, so let's backtrack. I want people to read the book, and we don't have to rehash all of the story that gets us to the part where you're living out West. But for those who haven't read it, just for the sake of this conversation, uh, talk a little bit about growing up in Connecticut and some of the forces that led you to decide to be more of a wild child and live on a boat and then run off with your then boyfriend. So I grew up in Connecticut with a pretty normal
1: childhood And I was just, I was always, I don't know where it, where it came from, honestly, I've tried really hard to track it down to one moment, but I mean, how can any of us really do that? But I just always felt like I did not fit in there. I felt like sameness was so sought after and I just never understood that. Um, I just never understood why we were all trying to hide is what it felt like to me a little bit. Um, And I really just sort of started thinking like, and and obviously I read, i read so many books when I was a kid. And so I read stories about people who had, were living different lives and had sort of made these leaps. And I I just felt like, why couldn't that be me? Um, And then I sort of, (laughs) I think a lot of the decisions that I make and I talk about this in my book come from this like very strong internal need to be against Mm-hmm. So when people are doing when everyone's doing something one way, I have to do it the other way. It's like I like
0: that you admit that because a lot of people like that try to pretend that that's not their MO and you're like, "But you keep doing that. Just oh, no. admit it. Just I mean, admit it that literally... you like to rebel for the sake of rebellion." Exactly. <laughs> and
1: and I I mean, I just got off the phone with my mom and I'm I'm talking about I am driving back to Connecticut for a month in my big orange oh, crazy van with four dogs hanging out the window. And it's so strange, but I just have this gleeful feeling of being like, I can't wait to drive this old, crazy Mad Max monster Mm -hmm. van through these streets where everything looks the same and it's cookie butter and it's BMWs. And it's, and I just like, I really genuinely enjoy kind of living with a subtle middle finger sticking up in some way all the time. And so I think that was really the initial drive to just see if I could almost like confuse people. So the boat was my first sort of opportunity and it really presented itself out of desperation because I didn't have anywhere to go at this point when, when I, Graduated from college. My parents had divorced. I didn't have a childhood bedroom that was waiting for me. I was living in one of the most expensive parts of the country. I had adopted a dog already, after having lied about having a house and <laughs> you know whatever, whatever. And so, I couldn't afford any kind of place, an apartment that, let alone that allowed pets. And my ex-husband's family had
0: this old boat at the time. Your uh, my, the time Boyfriend, he was my I yes. think. Yeah. So you yeah. had been high school friends and then it turned into a little something more. Yeah. And yeah. you guys stated throughout college, a little on and off, there was a break yes. in there Then you got yep. back together and now you're back both home where you grew up. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, he
1: was very much like me where he also kind of felt like this wasn't, this wasn't ultimately what he wanted. And, and something that I found so endearing about him right in the beginning was he actually comes from a very wealthy family and you would never know. I mean, he was just so uninterested in, in any of that status or kind of relying on that. I mean, like he would not accept $20 from his family. And I thought that was just really enviable because, I did not grow up in a very wealthy family. We were pretty standard middle
0: class, um, and it was important to your mom to not always let that on. Yeah. so she sort of gave you a much different relationship with money yes. because of that. Yeah, my mom would have loved to live on the coldest <laughs> that my right. aunt grew yeah. up on. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: so yeah, we 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 started, you know, living on this boat, and it was so unplanned because it was rushed. We didn't really have anywhere else to go, and. So it was the first time in my life where I had to figure things out by the hour, by the minute, you know, we didn't have any running water. We didn't have any, uh, like a shower. We had to walk up the dock into the parking lot to use the bathroom. (laughs) Although it was so much, it was easy for, for us to kind of like pee through the cracks in the dock. I mean, it was very like bare bones, but then you tell people in, Connecticut that you're living on a sailboat and it sounds so (laughs) like, so then again, it was just this like desire to be like, no, 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 it's a mess. It's, Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I have like a storage unit that I keep all my stuff in that I climb up into to change clothes for work every day. Like I wanted to show people that I was kind of living among them, but I wasn't anything like not anything like them, but, you know, I wasn't driven by a lot of the same Mm -hmm. motives that I, that I saw other people being driven by growing up. And then, then I've you know, we felt it was really time to, to, to get out of town. We had saved, I mean, like $5,000 between the two of us, I think, and just working over the summer. And, and we uh, were planning to go to California. And then we looked on Craigslist and couldn't afford to even live in like a box on the sidewalk, <laughs> especially again with a dog. It's not easy finding housing with a dog. So we settled on Salt Lake City because they, you know, jobs were good, employment rates were good, and it was really affordable.
0: And right. and you, you know, started out sort of halving it. You wanted to be amongst the wild, but you got yes. an apartment and you yeah. lived in the apartment, and it wasn't until you bought birth of the van that you started to really dip a toe into the waters of what does it feel like to, to not have a true home, Uh, sort of more like the boat, you know, I'll stop you there briefly because you wrote in the book about, so I think obviously your mom's concerns about what side of town she lived on one side, which is demonstrably wealthier and the way she wished she could be that way, obviously affected your view of money and possessions, but then also their divorce and your dad's, not being super interested in keeping a relationship with you that feeling of abandonment you write perhaps it was the loss of so much that made me want so little the less i had the less i'd inevitably have to part with that's very honest and you know during the pandemic there were people acting out in strange ways they were like running on the court in nba games or like being super weird on planes and everyone would just say well people forgot how to act and i'm like wait 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 that's not a reasonable explanation for yeah. like one year of being at home that all of a sudden you don't know you can't run into the middle of an nba game like yeah, that's not so i started yeah. <laughs> asking people who are experts in psychology and, and, and human behavior and they said actually what happens is when people feel a major loss of control they lean into it and they create more chaos because it gives them some control over what's happening. It's why people were shooting off fireworks on like a Tuesday at 7 p.m. in like September. Just because everything's insane. I'm just going to add to it. And it does feel like throughout the book, there are these moments where you're sort of trying to self-realize and understand the root cause of all your issues, but not in a professional, let me go to therapy and talk this through and handle it safely way in a... Run up against as many issues as possible to prove like there was a struggle by choice, right? It wasn't just that you were seeking the freedom and experience of living in a van and being out in nature. It was that you were actually choosing to struggle for whatever reason. And, and have you figured out now, whether that was a punishment of self because you internalized what your dad, your dad leaving, was it a, I'm going to prove to everyone. I don't need anything. If, if there isn't anything like, have you figured out what drove that? I think, yeah, I think that,
1: um, the latter I felt that's such an interesting thing that you kind of like lean in and create more chaos because even now, um, you know, with my property and, and, and how I live right now, there are little things that I could do to make my life significantly easier. Like my trailer that is up on my property is perfectly capable of having running water, <laughs> but I refuse to, to do that. Um, you know, I would go outside and pee, squat on the ground and pee. And You figure out why. And I, I think it's, yeah, I think I'm just still very much trying to prove that I, yeah, that I don't need anybody. Um, but I do, we all do. Right. Um, but I, I think I was just so, I mean, it was the control thing. Like no one's going to take anything away from me. Any chaos, any craziness is going to be brought on by my own accord. Right. I'm going to choose everything about my life, even the weird and crazy things. And I also think I have been running from this identity as like a girl from Connecticut. I have I've wanted to be like, you know, just, just, different and just kind of really escape that. And so a lot of times, like by living in, I often call it like squalor. I mean, four (laughs) dogs in a 26 foot trailer is obviously not a clean, normal situation. Mm -hmm. That it's almost just like continuing to prove like I am not like the people that I had a little bit of like,
0: like I despised a little bit growing up, to be honest. So I'm curious because that existence becomes something that you can monetize for social media. And the pictures on social media aren't squalor. Oh, yeah. No judgment there because it's not romantic if you're like, here's me taking a shit behind the van, right? Like you're not, yeah. that's not going to get as many likes no. as like, Look I at mean, beautiful knows nowadays it well, might. actually you could probably make a lot of money. I think people are selling like, they're like deodorant juice and like oh yeah their farts and like jars or whatever. <laughs> yes, I'm really missing exactly. out on that trend, but no, but I mean, it's very polished. And It's why I enjoy looking at it. I love seeing your dogs in beautiful places. I love the romanticism of living in a van. I have no desire to do it because Mm -hmm. of the actual realities of it, which you do talk about in your book and you're honest in your book about those things. For the most part, I think there's some stuff that maybe um, you still sanitize a little bit for the sake of the storytelling. But so how do you reconcile your desire to create a life and then also understand that that's not the life you want to put out there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the one the one thing that I would tell myself, I guess, to coddle myself. I mean, yes, hover
0: over hover over yourself and then take an accurate look.
1: Yes, like I feel like, of course, I I fell into the the Instagram grid. I mean, like I remember, it's gotten a lot more like casual. Where people, at least me, don't care as much like how pretty it necessarily looks. Like, of course, my pictures are still pretty, but I've tried to start sort of like posting things like me sweeping my dogs off on my front porch and I don't
0: necessarily try to make actually a turn against perfection because we, we recognized not only that it wasn't realistic, but it was dangerous for people to present things that didn't show reality. Um, Absolutely. And I try better balance now. Yes, definitely.
1: And I try to comfort myself. I always, I did, I should say, and even in the beginning, I tried to comfort myself with the fact that even though all of my pictures were very pretty, if you took the time to read some of the captions, I was trying to be honest in a way. It was weird. It was like back then before social media became an absolute nightmare zone for me. um, (laughs) (laughs) I wanted, of course I wanted followers. Of course I wanted companies to share my
0: photo. It was like, fun. It was, you know, it was exciting. and You have the money to then survive and do more yeah. adventures and things that right. you want to do.
1: I mean, to think that I, that I, the, this concept that I could go from working a nine to five job to like running around in the desert for a living, who the hell wouldn't take that? Right? Who right. wouldn't fight for that or, or continue to like, so yeah, I, I, w- I, f- I wanted to always have that like image of like, if you go over to my page, I want you to to be pulled in by the imagery. Right. But if you really read the captions, I wanted it to be a bit more honest and and have people feel like they were getting a little bit of the background. But yeah, in the beginning I was, God, my photos were, I, I cared so much about them too much about them. Um, and that's why I was so excited about the book because Like I remember in the beginning when I announced I was writing a book, people were like, oh, is it going to have like your pictures in it? I was like, hell no. It's going to be a real live memoir that sits on the book in between every other (laughs) book. And yeah, I just really wanted to sort of say like, you've seen the pretty parts. Here's,
0: here's the, little did you know, (laughs) little little did you know that the ugly parts wouldn't just be when the van breaks down and all of that. (sighs) We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Conundrum. Conundrum. This is an interesting one. I did not know the twists and turns that the word had taken. So in the 1590s, it was an abusive term for a person, meaning sort of like a pedant. Uh, In the 1600s, a whim, 1640s, pun or wordplay. Um, It's it's unknown origin, maybe Oxford University slang. Etymology online says, perhaps the sort of ponderous mock Latin word that was once the height of humor in learned circles. Uh, From 1745 on, started to mean a riddle in which some odd resemblance is proposed between things quite unlike, the answer often involving a pun. So an example from 1745, why is a sash window like a woman in labor? Because tis full of pains. Ah, yes. 1745 humor. Still hits. Uh, Conundrum. Interesting. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week comes from Britain's etymology queen, Susie Dent. And it's actually a duo of obsolete gems uh, that I saw and loved. Number one is lick spigot. One word, lick spigot from the 16th century, meaning the friend or acquaintance who always drops by just as you're opening a bottle of wine. Uh, And smell feast. Again, one word, smell feast, the friend who always appears just before dinner, one given to finding out and getting invited to good feasts. Uh, Both terms are quite obsolete. Both sort of refer to a parasite or a sponger, but there's not a lot of good info about either online. Um, In fact, when I was looking up Lick Spigot, it's also listed as an obsolete term for a bartender. That makes sense. Um, And an obsolete 18th century term for a prostitute or a woman who performs fellatio. Lick spigot, I guess, makes sense. So, I would just recommend you proceed cautiously if you decide to use either word in the public spaces. All right, in a sentence. The more successful one gets, the more licks spigots and smell feasts mill about waiting for a party to pop up. Now let's get back to the interview. So let's get into that. So... I encourage everyone to read the book. It's beautifully written. So many of the descriptions of the landscapes and the places really set the scene. And there's these very dramatic moments. I mean, I was genuinely scared reading about the canyoneering also because based on your Instagram, you said an important part of surviving was being part of the itty itty bitty titty committee. So you could squeeze through. And I was like, I'm dead. I'm dead. (laughs) I knew one day the old rack of lamb would kill me. And here we are. We found the day. It's (laughs) one of the first times I was like, yes, (laughs) yeah, sliding right through. Um, But I mean, it's such a good read and all of it, even before it really takes the turn is, is so fascinating. Um, And a lot of the realities of living on the boat of your dad, of the feelings that you had um, and all of that are really heartbreaking. I think a lot of ways people can absolutely identify with your desire to revolt against a life that just didn't fit you. And maybe there are healthier ways sometimes to do that, but people are going to find their way out and then figure that out. But then you get to this moment and as you said you're sort of writing this book in the moment so when you start it your plan is to write about how great your life is and mm-hmm. here's the dark times is when the van breaks down yep. and then this tragedy happens with one of your dogs um before we get to the tragedy um which by the way I was trying to finish the book and I was relaxing with friends and we all were just kind of doing our own thing. And I was sitting there trying to like not let on that. I was like hysterically crying um, because anything involving like dog, if, I, if my dog gets like a hangnail, I'm like, are you okay? Yeah. Um, and they're all like looking over they're like, are you all right? I'm like, no, not okay. Um, yeah. That was people, a tough one for a lot of yeah, people. I can't, oh my gosh. I couldn't, I did take breaks, but um, at the time of the accident, you had three dogs and not yet four, right? actually land just two. two actually yeah just two yeah um bucket and dagwood yes and so um tell people about the accident in whatever limited uh detail you are capable of giving
1: sure so um you know living out in the middle of nowhere there's a lot of open stretches of dirt road and and all things like that and and you know the van is she's an old gal we're the same age she's 1990 and so she giant just, orange, giant pumpkin. orange like, pumpkin, like
0: giant, like you, because you're almost six feet tall. You said I'm 5'10. Yeah. yeah. And the van is significantly taller than you.
1: Yes. And I think that's one of the things, like when when people see the van in real life, that like the most common thing I get is it's so much bigger than I thought. And I'm like, because yeah.
0: I think I'm bigger than you thought. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so... I, in the pictures, you probably think I'm a normal person. Right. So the exactly. van's a normal height. But now you're yeah. like, oh, it's about eight inches taller than I expected.
1: <laughs> totally. And so, yeah, it's a big van. I mean, it's 35 inch tires. It's 8,000 pounds. And so that's, that's still something that kills me when I think about the accident. But so we used to do something called redneck running your dog. Um, and there are a lot of people who are familiar who still do it, which I obviously do not advise (laughs) anymore. Um, but you just kind of let your dog out and you're, and they're running alongside next to you and the dogs would go crazy as soon as we hit dirt because they wanted to get out they could move so much faster than Bertha like rumbling along these roads and so there was one day where we were up on this dry lake bed that's pretty much you know like they use it to like set land speed records and it's it's very disorienting like there's no roads you can just drive anywhere and we let them out and god they were must have been running for about 40 seconds and we had driven for like 14 hours that day so they were really pent up energy and Bucket, uh, you know, playfully grabbed Dagwood scruff and he lost his footing and went under the back tire of the van. Um, and then that single moment, my entire life changed. And I always talk about wishing that I had paid better attention, like right before that happened, cause you just never know when everything is going to sort of blow right. up. Um, and then it took us ultimately, it took us six hours to get him to a vet that could actually help him. Um, he had a broken leg, his tail had been pulled away from his spine, he was ripped open on his stomach. It was really bad, really, really bad to the point where everybody, everyone who looked at him in the beginning, all these vets were like, we can put him down. And I would have let them. I, I would have let them if he had not survived for six hours. Cause I thought, well, who the hell am I to end that kind of fight? Mm. Um, If I had been, you know, right outside Salt Lake city and got him to an emergency vet and they were like, this is really bad. I probably would have let them put him down. Um, And so it's one of those like weird, weird silver linings. You try to find again in that like story version of yourself.
0: Well, Um, the first vet that you went to that said we can't do anything you were sort of ready. And then a conversation you had with Dagwood where you and your then husband apologized sort of made the vet realize, oh, this, this might've been them having the accident. This wasn't an accident involving someone else. So you need to give yourselves the opportunity to say you did all you could because otherwise the guilt of knowing that even as an accident that you had been involved might've been too much. So that was a major point too, because you then went on several more hours to a bigger vet. Right.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, I thought, God, the entire time I kept thinking like,
0: what do we do if he dies?
1: Do we like, where do we take him? We were in the middle of nowhere. And it was just like, I mean, you just expect every breath to be their last. And I know that he's a lot of people are like, it's a dog, but it's mm-hmm. not. It's my kid, no, family and member. I,
0: yep. I just can't, I
1: cannot describe I can't describe it. It is the most agonizing thing I have ever, ever, ever experienced. And I went through a lot of therapy afterwards, EMDR therapy, where, I mean, she would get me into this sort of like zone where I could smell the blood. Like it, it really kind of takes you back to try to like process those, those memories. And yeah, it was just, it was really bad. And then it got way worse in a, it got way better and way worse completely simultaneously, which is still something that I struggle with. Cause there's just, I feel like so much of my life is simultaneously amazing and horrifying.
0: It's a conundrum.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a conundrum. Um, but my mom's back in Connecticut, you know, still, and I call her and can barely even vocalize what has happened. And um, she and a good friend started a GoFundMe like genuinely purely as a gesture. At this point he had had, it had been like over 24 hours. He'd had a seizure from blood loss. Like we had said goodbye to him already. And then he just kept breathing. <laughs> he just kept surviving and But my mom set the limit to $10,000 on GoFundMe. And I think a lot of the veterinarians like almost scoffed at that because we had already racked that up, but it's an emergency vet. So everything is Mm -hmm. triple the cost. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just
0: spent that in two nights about a month and a half ago at the emergency vet and it wasn't even in surgery or an accident. It was just tests and ultrasound and x-rays and staying overnight once.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's why it just drives me absolutely nuts when people question how much it costs because I get it. It's absurd. Ultimately Mm -hmm. people ended up donating close to a hundred thousand dollars. And I get that that is absolutely crazy. However, it really cost just about that. There was a lot of money that we donated. There were, there were patients, people who would walk into the hospital with their dogs and we would just, without question, give them $5,000, swipe right. the card so that their dog could be taken in the back and surge. You know, and there was one dog that did not survive. And it's not like we get that money back. And right. all I could think of was the guilt. Like, why is my dog? Why does my dog get to survive? And hers did not. Yeah but ultimately he was in the hospital. He was in the ICU basically for 28 days. He had six different surgeries, two blood transfusions. Um, He was the longest patient in the history of the clinics, 35 years of being open. And it was, I mean, it was unprecedented. And I think that's again, why I get so frustrated with people who doubt how that money was spent. Like, how often do you hear stories of like a dog this? like
0: that? Yeah. <laughs> like- well, you have to explain why people would negatively react mm. to the dog being saved, other than, and I am the most dog-obsessive person ever but I can still reconcile as you do in the book that you can look at a hundred thousand dollars and think of all the other things that could be spent. Oh, on. absolutely. And that, absolutely. It, that's always going to be a feeling, you know, when people spend on dogs and you don't have to explain it. You can just, you know, yeah. but the reason that people so willingly gave is because of your love and relationship with the dog and their love of the dog through social media. Um, but in the book, you don't say you lied. You say you were sort of incomplete. You just sort of said that there'd been an accident, but in recent interviews, it makes it sound like there was a lie on Instagram at the time you created a man. Right. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that and why in that moment it felt so necessary to do.
1: I, oh God. And and you know, what? it's funny. It was one comment. It's amazing how quickly people who don't like me very much screenshot things forever and ever. Um, Oh,
0: don't I know it. (laughs) Uh,
1: it was one response to somebody. And I just like, I was so desperate for, for people to stop asking because like I said, I didn't want it to be true. And so I said, I I came up with this lie of like, you know, if it was like in my mind, it was a random person, but I think in the comment, I, I said, it was a friend of ours because I thought maybe that would, garner enough sympathy to stop asking because it would be like, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't even remember. Like right. there are entire days that are missing that are, and, and to be held permanently accountable for In that worst
0: moment where you think the that worst you moment have killed your dog. So you're, you're at the vet, And you decide to take to social media, which is a place that you've always vented and shared and connected with people um, that this tragedy has happened and and Dagwood is not doing well. And at this point you think he'll likely die and you're sort of asking people just for their thoughts and prayers and to send you good vibes. Your mom starts to GoFundMe. Um, The GoFundMe does not say that it was you and your then husband who were in the car and that your then husband was driving when it happened. And when you eventually tell the truth. And I'm curious how long it took you to decide and why you decided ultimately that you'd rather face the pain of people knowing that you had lied than face carrying around that lie forever. I, it was about two years after the accident
1: and it had, this secret had destroyed my marriage. It had destroyed the way that I, saw myself. Um, people were constantly, actually it was one message and I've always been meaning to go find this person and almost uh, weirdly thank them, even though it was absolutely cruel. Just out of the blue, you know, again, it had been over two years. She sent me a DM and it just said, do you have nightmares because you know that you did it. And I was freshly divorced, doing so unbelievably poorly on the phone with suicide hotlines that it, it literally was like, I either get this off my chest or it is actually going to kill me. Hmm. I, I will not survive it. And at that point, when you are so desperate for some form of relief, it just didn't matter. I didn't matter if I was Permanently wiped from the internet. If people hated me, if people wanted every dime back, I was like, I mean, I literally before I posted about it, I like looked into loans, like how much I would qualify for, like fully anticipating paying people back, and I just wanted, I wanted to feel free from it. Um, and it's still so hard for me to stomach that I'll I'll never be free. From it. Um, because when I did come out with the truth, there was, I don't know, 12,000 supportive comments of people saying, wow, that literally makes it so much worse for right. you.
0: Right. Not for me. Um, right. You know, I mean, the money was to save the dog and not, the dog was not saved. to make up for somebody else's mistake. It doesn't matter right. whose mistake it was. It was an accident and the dog lived. I'm going to pause here to read a piece of the book about what happened after the Dagwood incident. I became so intimately familiar with guilt that it began to eat me from the inside out, force me into a corner where I languished and lashed out like an animal. In the wake of such a public tragedy, we became extreme versions of ourselves. Neil retreated entirely into himself and his own closed-off world. I, on the other hand, retreated into the world I had created on my phone screen— It was a place of overwhelming positivity, real or imagined, a place where it was much easier to pretend things were okay, to pretend we were moving forward, putting this trauma behind us. Dagwood survived, so people saw my life now as a happy story. I spent most of my time trying to see it that way, too. It was much easier than seeing the real story that was unfolding in front of me, Neil's beer cans in the shower, his vomit beside the bed, the holes punched through bedroom walls, the flipped over, mangled corpse of the first white pickup truck. Then the second. Neil was swallowing his feelings, and I was sacrificing mine. We had saved Dagwood's life, but at what cost? Neil and I never blamed each other, at least not outwardly. But eventually he stopped coming to bed. I'd find him locked inside a room in the basement with his guitar and his crushed cans. When I'd knock, he would crack the door open, look directly into my eyes, and lie. But each time I kept my head down and I went back to bed. I kept my head down and I posted. I was certain if I could make our world on Instagram look fine, our real life would follow. If Dagwood survived it, I told myself, then we can too. It took me years to say any of this out loud. Years to come forward online and admit the truth to everyone who donated. We had all saved Dagwood, but something broke in Neil and I that couldn't be saved anymore
1: the crazy thing is I believe there was over 8,000 individual donations. The average donation was $15. I remember getting donations and and reading the comments and oftentimes they were read to me because I, I don't know, I could barely stand up for a month. Um, And there was one where she sent $5 and she said, I'm, I'm a broke college kid. But if I was there, I would give you a hug and buy you a cup of coffee. Mm. And there was a lot of little things like that. And when I came out with the truth, six people out of 8,000 asked for their money back. Wow. And that's completely their business, right? Like this was at the beginning of the pandemic. $15 Mm. is a lot of money to people. I never posted their names. I never said a mean word to them. I asked them to, you know, obviously provide proof (laughs) of the donation, which you know, GoFundMe always sends that that email. And they all provided it. And I said, you know, PayPal or Venmo. And I sent it with a little dog emoji and that was it. And because people are absolutely entitled to that. But ultimately it was, it was a relief and it was also agonizing that I had really just damn near killed myself over the fear of what people would say and do. And there was initially this very big sense of relief and that faded pretty quickly because unfortunately in the, in the time that we live in, if about a dozen people hate you, they can successfully destroy your mental health. They can infiltrate areas of your life that, I mean, the dedication is so frightening. Um, And when I
0: found that Reddit page, it was like, so then stop following her, right? Just stop following her. Stop reading about her. You've well, made and One point. of the most disturbing you know? things is that
1: in the very beginning in 2020, Reddit actually was contacted enough by, I think like my mom <laughs> and <you> know, <laughs> lots of other people and Reddit actually stepped in and said, we agree that this thread is cause for suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. and we are removing it. And these people started another one. Yeah. Knowing that full and that's that's the
0: thing is that I believe in holding people accountable for lies or bad behavior or racism or whatever. But I also believe if you're doing that, the end goal should be a change in behavior A recognition of bad choices, a desire to get better, a desire to evolve, a belief in humans that they can be better, or just an acknowledgement of a mistake made and how you've grown from it. The, The end result of that can't be making that person's life miserable. No, finding someone who's struggling or weak or in a bad place and attacking them until they can't go out anymore. And that's what happens on that. There's this terrible piling on on the internet. And if somebody thinks that you, misleading or lying about a horrific accident is bad, then stop reading you and supporting you and move on with their lives. What they're doing now is significantly worse because it's intentional. And they're not in a dark, desperate, terrible moment of shame. And they're not gonna grow out of it and then learn. Hopefully some of them will. (laughs) They're just doing it because of whatever dissatisfaction and sadness is in their own lives. And that's something that I've had to teach myself As a woman in a male-dominated industry who is constantly attacked for literally nothing, sometimes something, most of the time nothing, Mm -hmm. that first of all, you have to hope that people will eventually move on. So Mm -hmm. you cannot let them live in your head. You can't give them any time, space or energy because hopefully eventually they'll find something else to care about and they'll leave you alone. And secondarily, that you have to just have empathy for them because you have to imagine how dissatisfying their lives are if this is how they spend their time. And then you feel sorry for them instead of angry. And then you just move on. And the best way to move on is to be happy and successful and honest moving forward in ways that do nothing but disprove whatever it is that they're saying about you.
1: Yeah totally. And like, I, I guess I was really confused because at first, I mean, you know, like I said, I understood anger, disappointment, whatever, but it's been so long. And I've, I've admitted to so many things that, that these people were angry at me about, or, or, or like the accountability thing. Like if you admit your mistake what more are you supposed to do? There was, there will never be enough penance for these people. There will right. never be enough punishment for me. Well, and I, and I think that that, that, that is what pisses me off the most because these people are hiding behind. We want to hold her accountable. Right. We think she's this So, she, you know, um, in terms of cultural or things that are going on right now, political, whatever she doesn't do. They're hiding behind that and using it as an excuse to be outright, awful bullies,
0: yeah. Yeah. period.
1: It right. is, they don't give a, sh- they don't care if I post a link, they don't care. They don't care. It's never going to be enough. Exactly. It will never be enough. And Once you learn that, that's when you just like care
0: about. That's when you, that's when you, when you learn that, that's when you just separate. Yeah. It's easier said than done, but that's the choice you have to make. And, and I'm curious because I think this is especially difficult for someone like you, because your life and your choices have mostly been, I don't care what people think, mm-hmm. but also somewhere underneath is actually, I really care what people think. And I hope they can see that I oh, don't need God. anyone or anything. And I'm running away because I'm so alone. I could do all my things. So social media and making a living off of being an influencer or Instagram inherently in ways that probably you despise inside, you have to care how people feel about you and what they think, because your career is predicated on whether they're going to like your posts and engage with them and take trips with you and buy the stuff that you hawk and use those products. That's such a terrible dichotomy to be in because you have to want to them to like you, but you also definitely for your sanity need to be able to separate from the people who are never going to let you off the hook. Yeah. And it's
1: pretty impossible. And like, I've been, this is a concept I've been talking about, you know, with friends and family lately that like, God, I hate and refuse usually to even use the word famous. Cause I've achieved some modicum of public, you know, uh, notoriety or whatever. I'm not famous enough like I don't have a whole publicity team. Like you can write a blog about like Kim Kardashian. You think she's reading it? Give me a break. You think if you email info at Kim <laughs> that it's her answering, mm-hmm. I'm not anywhere near that. So there is no buffer between me and these people. And I want so badly to create one. But then again, that goes against almost the whole point of why I'm still on there, the whole point of why I write really vulnerable stuff and why I wrote this book ultimately. And it's just, it is this horrible conundrum. And I, I mean, people ask me like, what has this experience been like as a whole? And the, the only word that I think will ever aptly describe it is isolating. Yeah. Yeah this has been the most isolating experience because you feel like whether people love you or hate you, they, they don't see you the same. They don't relate to you the same way. And they, well, and they ultimately don't know you. Yeah. And
0: I think uh, that's one of the fascinating things about your case in particular is that you sought isolation and now you're getting it, but it's not the way that you wanted it. Yeah. And I also think that's, something. And I'm not a social media person by trade. I end up being on it a lot. And a lot of my interactions come from that because I'm on TV or the radio, wherever people engage with me when I'm actually creating content. And then there's a whole nother life online. Mm -hmm. And what you have to sort of learn is that the people who actually know you are the ones that matter. Yep. And you have to give the people who are kind to you an equal amount of grain of sand as the people who are awful because yep. if you only listen to the positive you can convince yourself that the negative people are just mean yep and never right yep. but then you'll allow yourself to believe that the people who love you are always right and you're, <laughs> you're without fault and you don't deserve any of this yeah. and there needs to be an honesty in the middle right yeah. and so i think you're right in the middle of it and i hope that when you have more time away from the book and this particular moment where the Reddit people are going insane about whatever's in the book and your ex is posting his version and people are analyzing every detail of it. And you're having to talk about this every second and rehash the trauma. This is the eye of the storm. Yeah. I hope that as you get further away from it, this moment actually becomes this like really beautiful pivot for you where yeah. you recognize all of the good stuff that came from that social media Um it doesn't happen without that other side and then and then you figure out how to how to live on it with both because unfortunately when you make a lot of money and you have success because of all the great supporters um you're also putting yourself out there for all the people with ill intentions the people who are just jealous that you're living a cool life and you know hanging with your dogs in the the desert (laughs) you know a lot of people attack just because of just because of jealousy I kind of want to end on a briefly positive note. And so I would ask you, and I hope this is positive, but you don't have to spin it that way if it's not. (laughs) I think most people will ultimately learn that being honest and telling the truth, no matter how much it hurts in that moment, and even if there is going to be shame associated with that lie or that behavior or whatever you're recovering from when you have to become clean about it, that the other side is ultimately better. Yes. Oh
1: my God. I mean, because, you know, it's one thing, to, to feel better about who I am online. Right. Or that, you know, like I'm honest with people and they can go back to, I feel like if people like me, they like me for the real me now, and not this like image that I was trying to protect or this secret I was trying to hide that constantly had me thinking if they knew they would all hate me. Mm. And now being on the other side, the most important thing for me is that. I will get off this call and go take my dogs for a walk and I will be okay with who I am.
0: Yeah,
1: I will be okay because there are so many people both online and in my real life who really love me no matter what. And I'm so lucky. It's the only reason I'm here. The dog, you know, that I've survived is the dogs and my family and my lifelong friends who just look at me. I'm just (laughs) Brie. I'm just... Absolutely imperfect, Brie, like anybody else. And and that's such an important perspective to hold on to. And so, yeah, I'm just, I cannot recommend enough telling the truth. It is, it's really scary, but ultimately it sets you free and it sets other people free. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that was the biggest thing for me. Again, like this happened, I can't undo it. What am I going to make out of it? how how am I going to, how am I going to try to tie a bow on the end of this extremely messy story? And it's just, you know, the bow is, you know, it's not
0: pretty, (laughs) but, (laughs) but, but but show an example for others and show them what it looks like to own your past and to learn from it and evolve and to embrace the truth. And you, you didn't ask for my advice, but I would say, Keep focusing on the people who know you because they're going to know all the parts of you instead of one or two extremes that they'll latch on to, to love or hate you Yeah, both ways. People can love you also for the dumbest things that mean nothing about who you actually are. Yep, And then also it's easier for me to have the same grace for the people that are awful to me as I do for myself when I'm hard on myself, it's easier to feel sorry for them and to hope that they get better than it is to be angry because then you're carrying around all this anger for someone that you shouldn't give any time or energy to, right. If you're carrying around grace for them and, and you hope that they move out of a space where they would attack someone for a dark moment and not forgive someone for something they've come clean about that that's going to serve you a lot better as hard as that is to do.
1: No. Yeah. I mean, it's always easier said than done, but, but I have these moments of clarity where, I recognize that no person, you know, somebody asked me recently, do you, you know, do you hope that karma comes for them? And I think it already has, because I don't know that anyone who's had, who is happy in their life behaves this way. Mm -mm. Um, And so I try to think like, I don't need to wish ill upon these people. There's already a lot going on that I don't know about that, that causes this behavior it's not normal it's not um beneficial it's i can't imagine keeping myself angry all the time following obsessively someone right. some stranger off. some like, stranger
0: what? who by the way made a mistake and there are a whole lot of people who have done a lot worse things than than you yeah. and so to carry that and for that to be an obsession is you're right it's there's something else going on that hopefully gets better for them yeah. and in the meantime the biggest thing to do is just thrive and succeed. And they can watch that happen and do it yeah. gracefully and gently and kindly with a smile yeah. on your face, which is what you're doing because your book is great and very successful. Yeah. And keep, you know, learning those lessons and then sharing them so that, you know, this accident, as as awful as it was, will will just continue to evolve and, and change in your mind as something that really changed your life for the for the better eventually. Yeah.
1: And I, I that. think that's why I was so adamant about my book tour cuz i was like i have looked at people leaving wonderful lovely supportive comments for years but there's something really different about wrapping your arms around someone 100% um and i am such a hugger like i dive at these people when they <laughs> show up
0: to my events
1: because i've just dreamed of thanking people it's like people come up people show up at these events and say thank you to me and i'm like no I'm here to thank you. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that is just will always be the brightest, brightest light at the end of what has felt like a long tunnel. So,
0: well, if you're listening to this and she's still got some tour dates, I guess, you know, look out for the hugs. Uh, they're <laughs> probably coming. <laughs> Thanks coming so much to for coming near you. on. Yeah, the, the book is really great. I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you. This has been wonderful. It was so good to
0: talk to you. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place for rants, raves, everything in between. Sometimes I'll complain about something. Sometimes I'll share a great story that I think you should check out. Whatever's on my mind. Uh, this week, it's to watch The Bear on Hulu. I just binged the whole series, and I love it. It's super honest, super true-to-life look at working in a kitchen. It's a study in families, substance abuse, creativity, passion. It's funny. It's really dark. It's smart. It's dramatic. It's compelling. uh, Really great acting. Awesome nods to Chicago and Chicago culture. uh, So I highly recommend it. Also, I whipped through all of season two of The Other Two on HBO Max after being reminded of it when I was talking to Lucia and Yellow a couple episodes ago. So good. So, so, so funny. So go watch The Other Two as well. You can always tweet me, at Sarah Spain, if you have guest suggestions, dilemmas, questions, whatever. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe or follow. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Rate it. Five stars, please. Give it a review. Uh, And thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.
1: That's what she said.